0: that business for about 18 months and maybe generated 20 or 30 grand in total revenue. October 2016, we finally decided we were going to stop pursuing this business. A few months before that, Gong had announced their like avocado seed round. It was like $6 million. And one of our customers, the CEO of like one of the first customers we closed, he forwarded me the press release from Gong. And he goes, sounds like your space is heating up. He almost like meant it as like a get your shit together. I was like, we're done. Like Gong's going to crush us. I knew of a meet right? The CEO of Gong. And I was lucky enough that a meet reached out to me first. So now I can like kind of play coy. And he was like, hey, I, you know, I heard you're closing up shop from some of your customers. I hope it's not true. But if it is, I would love to have you come run product marketing over here. After interviewing with some of the other companies too, I decided to join Gong. Gong killed Chris Orlov's startup. For some founders, that would be the end of the story,
1: but for Chris, that was just the beginning. Welcome to Grow and Tell, the show where our revenue leaders tell the growth stories behind successful companies. I'm your host, Alex Krakow. Grow and tell, grow and tell. Back in 2015, Chris Orlov founded Conversature, a conversation intelligence tool. Unfortunately for Chris, Gong, the eventual category winner, was founded the same year. But just as the doors were closing at Conversature, a door opened at Gong. In 2016, Gong's CEO reached out and offered Chris a product marketing role as their 13th employee. Within his first few weeks at the company, he started Gong Labs, one of the most successful content marketing programs in all of SaaS. In his six years at Gong, Chris had stints as their director of product marketing, head of sales for their growth segment, and head of sales and go-to-market for new products. He helped Gong grow from 200K to 200 million in revenue and over a $7 billion valuation. He also built an impressive LinkedIn audience along the way. In 2022, he left Gong and leveraged his audience into co-founding P-Club, a sales learning platform, and Quota Signal, a tech-enabled revenue team hiring service. In today's episode, Chris joined me to talk about his origin story at Gong, why Gong succeeded with only three sales reps, and how Gong beat out Chorus. Plus, we discussed the transition from operator to entrepreneur at P-Club and how he sees the future of sales tech playing out. I hope you enjoyed today's conversation. So before Gong, you started a company, Conversature, which was an early pioneer in what became the conversation intelligence category. I'd love to know what led you to start the company and why did you pick this emerging product category?
0: Well, it is generous of you to say that we were an early pioneer. I I don't know if I could uh, describe myself in that company as lofty as that. But when I started, or shortly before I started that, I was a regional sales manager at a company called insidesales.com. And at that time in my life, I was desperate to start a company. I just wanted to be an entrepreneur. It was like anything that's like legal, ethical, and scalable. Those were my criteria for what kind of business I could start. And I remember one day I was trying to help a few reps ramp faster that were on my team. And I was hamstrung, right? I couldn't like listen to their calls, uh, at least easily, right? Without like writing shotgun. And so I stumbled across this industry that's been around for a while called speech analytics. And this is almost like old school, clunky versions of Gong, but for call centers. And so I found an industry analyst for that industry. I think he worked at Gartner or something like that. I got him on the phone and I was like, why doesn't this exist for B2B? Because like as a sales manager, I have this problem. And he goes, I don't know. And that was enough for me. I had saved up enough like life savings at that point where I was like, okay, this is what I'm starting. So shortly after that, I left my job. Uh, horrible timing. It was like right after, uh, I think my son just turned one years old. And so like lots of reasons to not be starting a company. And I went and my co-founder, who's my current co-founder in my existing business and P club, he joined me and, and that's how that got started. Yeah, I think my, my first job
1: out of college I worked at Yelp and I remember my manager like barging in to the calls and like that was oh, the for only the way. The Especially worst. when they
0: like whispering in your yeah. ear and the other harder, push harder. I can't yeah. do this. Yeah, at the same yeah. time.
1: Like, go <laughs> past that objection. And it was just like the craziest thing. And I knew nothing about sales at the time. But I'm still not amazing at sales, but yeah, that was it's so much better now as a founder. I can just go listen to all the gong calls and, and get a sense of things. So yeah, it's funny how how far it's come. I'm curious, how far along did you get into the business? Like, did you have a working product? Did you have customers? Like, uh, yeah, how far along
0: did you get? We had working with air quotes around it. Yeah. I think we did that business for about 18 months and maybe generated like 20 or 30 grand in total revenue. And so, I mean, my hair is pretty gray. That comes from that period of my life, (laughs) right? Just like living off of life savings, watching my bank account go like this every two weeks so that I can pay my family's bills. So we we got to like a minimally working product, a handful of customers, and it it was like a really long story that led us to like finally throwing in the towel. There were a number of reasons that we eventually did. This was like October 2016. We finally decided we were going to stop pursuing this business. And I told the handful of customers we did have to go check out Gong. A few months before that, Gong had announced their like avocado seed round it was like $6 million. And so now they were like, you know, out in the world. And one of our customers, the CEO of like one of the first customers we closed, uh, their implementation was not going well because we had a quote unquote working product. And he forwarded me the press release from Gong, And he goes, sounds like your space is ha- heating up. He almost like meant it as like a get your shit together. And I remember that day, this was in June, 2016. It was 3 p.m. I closed the blinds. I went to sleep. I didn't wake up till 5 a.m. the next day because I was like so despondent. I was like, we're done. Like Gong is going to crush us. I knew of a meet, right? The CEO of Gong, I knew who he was. I knew he had been working on this. And so that was like kind of a devastating day for me. But then, like, fast forward a few more months, it just didn't work out. We told our customers, go check out Gong. And I was scheming about how I was going to get in front of a meet. Because that that was the job that I wanted. I was like, this isn't gonna work, but I want to see if I can work for Gong or Chorus or Exact Vision, which were like the startups in that space at the time. And I was lucky enough that a meet reached out to me first. So now I could like kind of play koi
1: <laughs> Position of power. Yeah. <laughs> exactly.
0: I still have like the LinkedIn message and like I joke about how coy I was playing with him, but I was like really excited. And he was like, Hey, I, you know, I heard you're closing up shop from some of your customers. I hope it's not true, but if it is, I would love to have you come run product marketing over here, which I'd never done. Like I've never worked in marketing for some reason at that point in my life, I wanted to try my hand at product marketing. And so I just, after interviewing with some of the other companies too, I decided to join Gong.
1: And so you started in product marketing at Gong, which can mean a number of different things. Do you remember like what your early conversations were with Amit where I was like, Hey, you're doing marketing now. You should focus on X, Y, and Z. Like what was sort
0: of your mission at the beginning? Amit had no job description for me. And I think he did that intentionally, right? He was just like, I saw how you can market your own business on a shoestring budget. I want to see if you can do the same uh, for, for us. And so my first boss at Gong was Udi Lettergore, who's still over there. He's chief evangelist at the time, he was VP of marketing, eventually went on to become CMO. And he had me <laughs> write my own job description. He's like, you just tell me what you want to do here and like what kind of impact. And so it was much more an external facing role than what a lot of product marketing is, right? A lot of product marketing is equipping internal customer facing people to like tell the narrative. And we didn't have those people, (laughs) right? We had no A meat was selling at the time. And so my job, or at least a huge part of it, was more or less evangelism. It was being very loud in different social platforms, getting on stage, doing webinars, and just trying to get gong on the map and build that initial velocity that we eventually got to.
1: That's the fun part of the super early stage. I remember when I joined Lattice in marketing, Jack was just like, okay, go do marketing now and it's like all right i'm gonna go figure out what that means and all the different things and you know that's
0: like the fun puzzle of and like I the super it. early stage. Yeah. Like I, I don't mind a lack of structure and in fact i almost prefer it right i don't like structure imposed on me i guess this is kind of fair i like creating structure and imposing it on others <laughs> yeah i think that's why I, like i like to be an entrepreneur now and i'll probably never have like a normal job again yeah
1: And so in your first couple of weeks at Gong, I think you launched a data experiment by like ungating an ebook.
0: Can you share that story? Yeah. Well, I wanted to do this with Conversature. I remember me and my co-founder being like, can you imagine when we have dozens or hundreds of customers and we take all their transcripts and anonymize them and like publish reports on like, according to data, here's what the best salespeople do. And we're like, we just got to get enough customers to do it. And so obviously we never got to that point with Conversature. But like with, inside of my first week at Gong, I became aware of this campaign we were running, which was the same thing, but it was an ebook, right? Like it was like a PDF ebook where it was like we analyzed twenty five thousand sales calls. Here are five things the best salespeople do differently. And I'm sitting here steaming at the ears because I'm like, this thing will go viral, and we're hiding it behind a landing page. Like this is good. And so I email Udi and a and I'm like, can I turn this into an article? And they're like, yeah, go for it. And I wrote this article like over the weekend, again, like this was like within week one. And I had to decide where I was going to like place it. Like, was this a LinkedIn article, whatever? For some reason, we decided sales hacker at the time was the best outlet for us. And it actually turned out to be a good idea because we published it. And it got like thousands of shares immediately. And we were like off to the races, right? Like there was kind of this moment we had where we're like, all right. So like, is that it? Is that our next campaign? We did the data thing. And we're like, well, there's probably one or two different angles we can take. Like, let's get our data science team to analyze some more calls. And let's try this two or three more times. A hundred articles later, (laughs) they're still going with that, right? You would just find different ways to cut the data and different questions to answer. Gong still does that to this day. The impact that had on the first two years of the business was incredible, though. Just the word of mouth and the virality and the inbound demand it was generating.
1: Why do you think the data play worked so well? Why do you think people in sales are just so hungry for this like data content play?
0: <laughs> I think there's two reasons. One is just there's never been any data validating what actually works in sales. Aside from like Neil Rackham in the 80s, right? He did the spin selling experiment where apparently he and his team like did shotgun ride-alongs with 30,000 salespeople. Interesting. And so this is like the closest thing real data as the world had ever seen. The other thing though, which is kind of dumb, (laughs) is just how much of the data validated what people wanted to hear. Like you go through the comments and they're like, I totally agree with this data. I've known this for years. And you're like, well, I agree with the data. That's a weird thing to say. Like, it doesn't matter if you agree with the data or not. (laughs) It's just there, it's fact. But a lot of people just loved that their, you know, notions of what works in sales or at least many of them, uh, were validated with data. I don't know what the brain science is behind that. I'm sure there's something super interesting (laughs) if you got into it and like dopamine just flowing or something like that. But I don't know, that's, that's the best I got. Yeah. No, I
1: imagine just a bunch of, you know, VPs of sales, like running to their founders or whatever, being like, see, I told you, see, I told you uh, the, the data is real. Right. And like, it, yeah. it, it also fits into like the social psychology of you share things that you believe in and reaffirm. So I don't know, it makes, it makes a ton of, of sense. And people always say, I don't know, data is a great way to get PR and all that. So I'm sure that that worked well. Totally. I'm curious, like, how did you actually work with the data science and product team? Because I've tried this in the past, and it can sometimes be like a challenge to get their resources, get them to focus on things that help marketing. Usually, requires exec sponsorship. Like, were yeah. they just fully bought in, or what? So, a meet
0: you... was adamant about this. We hired like a data science firm within like a couple months to work with our data science team, and their entire job was to like work with me to analyze different cuts of the data and answer different questions it was not just like exec buy-in. It was like, a meet is like, I want to see an article like this every two weeks. And so like the entire company was behind this. And then
1: why did you end up picking LinkedIn? It seemed as like a primary distribution channel. I think you were pretty early
0: to that. Why did you go there? Just simple. Sales leaders are on LinkedIn, right? It's where our market congregates and still does, right? That's where they are. And we tried other avenues that never really worked like in addition to LinkedIn. Like even to this day, I don't have Twitter figured out. Like this morning, I'm like, I'm gonna get Twitter working. <laughs> and I don't know if I ever will. And maybe I don't need to, but that, that's why we chose LinkedIn in the beginning. It's just, that's where salespeople and sales leaders were. And that's where they spent their time.
1: Makes sense. I've heard you say you were like a sales guy in disguise running product marketing. I'm curious,
0: how did how did your background in sales like help you do marketing? There is this guy named Eben Pagan, who uh, I learned a lot from as a marketer. He's like a direct response marketer. He sells like information products and teaches entrepreneurs how to be very good marketers. And one of the things he said in one of his seminars really resonated with me, which was if you want to learn how to sell one to many, which is what marketing is, you will be best served by first figuring out what works one to one. Because if you know what works one to one, it is far easier to scale that out into a one-to-many way. And I'm not saying like, to be a good marketer, you have to have sales experience because that's an exaggeration, but it helps, right? Like if you're a product marketer and your job is to put together a sales deck for salespeople to use, and you've never had to go eye-to-eye or toe-to-toe with another human being and ask for their money, you question whether that's the right person to put that sales deck together, right? So, I mean, just having that skill set of what works on a one-to-one basis amplifies in many cases your ability to market well in a one-to-many way
1: and i, I assume you just like so deeply understood the icp because you were oh, the yeah. icp I, right I mean, you know this yeah is what i've done
0: my entire career is and i tell people this like sales technique is important but the more fundamental piece of knowledge you can get is understanding your buyer so well that you can peer into their soul if you can get to that point everything becomes far far easier
1: I'm curious how Gong's marketing sort of scaled over time. Like, how is it different in the early days from zero to 1 million, then 1 to 10, then 10 to 100 and and beyond? Like, were there things that were noticeably different? Or was it kind of the same just on steroids? Like, how did you sort of think about that evolution? uh,
0: At least while I was in marketing there, it was the same, but on steroids up until like 20 or 30 million in revenue. I won't say who it is or what company it works for, but there was this other like semi-famous CMO at the time. And he goes out to like a cocktail party with Udi. And he asks Udi, he's like, how many people are on your marketing team? And Udi was like, three, not counting me. And the guy's eyes popped out of his head because like Gong is super well known at this point. And he's like, I have a team of 40 content writers and we're not doing the same work as you guys. Please do not tell my CEO that you only have 30 people on your marketing team. And I don't say that as like, a, oh, we were so talented. It was more just like we found something that was so high leverage, which was Gong Labs, that we just triple downed on it, right? Like, we could have gone and messed around and done a bunch of other things. And we did. But it was clear that like, the number one marketing priority during that entire stretch of time was Gong Labs, because it has an incredible number of benefits to the business. It creates virality and word of mouth. It positions us strategically how we want to. It creates inbound demand and it creates other opportunities for more marketing. Like people would invite us to come on stage at conferences and present that stuff. So it was kind of the same playbook, just like you said, on steroids for a while there. Yeah. It seems like you just had extreme like content market fit. It just, what what you put out there, it
1: just accelerated like crazy. Yeah. 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 All right. So you eventually transitioned to a sales row at Gong where I think you led the growth. Segment and you had a good thing going in marketing. So I'm curious, like, why did you switch to sales and what was the growth segment? Who were you selling into?
0: Growth segment was typically mid market accounts as the world defines it. I'm trying to think back, like, why I made that decision. I think there were a number of things. One is I got tired of not being able to call the shots in product marketing and in a lot of roles like that. You're kind of at the mercy of like the sales leader. And I hated that. Like my ego was like too big to handle it at the time. And so I wanted my head on the chopping block. I wanted me to be accountable for a number so that I am now charting the course rather than like responding and reacting to somebody else's demands. That was a big one. The other one is I wanted at the time to be a CEO. And so I wanted to get like a breadth of go-to-market experience, not just like one bucket. Now, I had already had sales leadership experience, but I hadn't had second line sales leadership experience. And this was a second line role. And so I learned a lot about like people leadership in management in a way that I hadn't before, having only spent some time in frontline management and as an account executive and then as a marketer. So that was the motivation is I was trying to round out like the swirling resume that eventually leads up to a C-suite role.
1: Makes a lot of sense. And I'm curious, what was the sales pitch in those days for Gong? And did it evolve? Is it kind of the same pitch today? Or what did you start with? And how did you sort of think about making the case to to the customers?
0: No, our, our pitch changed quite often, but it wasn't ever like huge pivots. It was kind of like derivatives of something that came before. So the the first pitch that we really tried was like the science of sales, like basically turning Gong Labs into like a sales narrative. And that kind of worked, but that's not really the product that Gong was delivering at the time, right? There was a little bit of a disconnect between Gong Labs and what the product could actually do at the push of a button for a customer, right? You couldn't wire up Gong, press a button and have it tell you all the things that are different between your best reps, according to data. And so we ended up positioning away from that and moving toward a narrative that was a little more successful, which at the time we called it the three pillars of revenue success. And it was like, there's three things you need to get right. There's people success, right? You need to make your rep successful. There's deal success, you need to manage your pipeline. And then there is strategy success, which is like rolling out strategic initiatives through your sales organization. And our point was, you can't execute well on any of those three, if you don't have visibility into what's going on in frontline conversations. And so Gong opens up this black box, gives you that visibility, and helps you power those three dimensions of running a successful revenue organization. And that worked really well. And based on what I see at Gong, right, it's been a while since I've been there. It's been like 15 months or something. It still feels like they don't say that exactly, but what they're going to market with, to me, feels like a derivative of that. Right now, they talk about unlocking reality, And, you know, you're blind to reality without visibility into frontline conversations, and it powers a number of important things for you to make good on.
1: Yeah, my outside perception of the positioning change over the years was more like, all right, call recording, sales coaching, we'll get insight into that. And then it's now become this whole analytics engine to
0: help with forecasting and leadership and and all of that stuff, which is interesting. Yeah. Yeah, that's totally true. Because one of the problems we had on the sales side during the first couple of years is we were positioned as like a coaching tool a call recording tool uh, for enablement, right? If you're positioned as coaching or something like that, you tend to start your sales cycles and enablement. And those were really tough sells. I don't know why we struggled so much with enablement. I think a lot of it is because they don't have as much power as you would think. And so we started to reposition as like not just coaching, but also pipeline management and strategy execution so that we could get in front of the chief revenue officer because we had a huge sales problem of like, So many deals would just get stuck with a director of enablement and they wouldn't go anywhere. Super interesting. We're dealing with that problem now. Docs. That's a great lesson
1: for me because we sell into sales orgs, and it's like, all right, we can. We have a product like growth, So It could be the sales rep, end user. Then there's enablement and rev ops and CRO, and it's like, where's our entry point? And we actually have figured out the same thing as it works way better when it's a top down sale. We get the CRO involved, and then the enablement person like helps move it along, but they're not the decision maker in our deal. You know, funny
0: enough, I'm finding the opposite to be true selling P Club to businesses because like. When we first started selling to businesses um, at P-Club, I had the same scar tissue. I was like, we're going straight to the VP of sales and CRO. And those still work. But like the deals where we start with enablement and then go to the VP of sales actually work better for us at P-Club. And I think it's because we're selling like a skill development platform, which enablement squarely owns. And if you start with the top and then get punted down, enablement's obviously going to be running the sales process and they feel like it's kind of being imposed on them. Versus like when we go to enablement now and get them bought in, as long as we did our job well, they're very eager to take us to like chief revenue officer. So. It's, it's weird interesting. Yeah. yeah,
1: yeah. It's like the psyche of a champion. You know, it's like you it needs to be there. You need to like incept them, make it their own idea, oh, right? So where it's like brutal. they're going in, whereas like, oh, the annoying boss is telling me to do it. It's like, okay, go away, boss. I know what I'm doing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I want to talk. I'm gonna get. We're gonna get into P Club in a minute here. I want to stay on Gong for just a couple more questions. I remember Gong being super competitive with Chorus. I feel like that was like the main head-to-head competition. Like, how did you think about the competition at the time? Were there others? And how did you win head-to-head? Because I feel like Gong won this battle, at least, you know, as I think about
0: it. Yeah. It was definitely Chorus head-to-head, right? Exec Vision was there early, but they dissipated over the course of like a couple of years. Our competitive deal strategy was very like based on pattern interrupt. Because like most people would come to us and they're like, yeah, this is like basically the same thing. And our CEO trained us. He's like, you need to interrupt that thought pattern where we go, "Mm, no, these are like totally in a different league. And I can't remember exactly what the talk track was there, but like, we would make a point that it's like, chorus is okay. They're a little bit cheaper. Gong is light years ahead. And people are like, that's a bold thing to say. And, you know, our talk track that followed that would change throughout the years, just based on what actually was different, but like we very much shied away from like spreadsheet comparisons, right? We tried to get out of that mindset as much as possible and instead just like interrupt the entire thought pattern around like us being even vaguely in the same ballpark as Chorus.
1: I heard you say in another presentation, it was like how you sell is more important than what you sell. And I think the example you just gave is a, is a right. really good example of that. It's like that feature parody battle is just a losing battle for everybody. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about why consistency is the key to a great sales process? And how did you kind of
0: define those different stages at, at Gong? I think consistency is the key to running a sales organization. I don't think it's necessarily the key to an individual being successful, right? Because if if you run a 50-person sales organization, you have to have everybody marching in the same direction unless or else you just can't manage them. But like what you will always find in that 50 person sales organization is uh, what you'll always find in like a 50 person sales organization is some of the best people don't follow the process, but you can't manage them. Now, you know, that speaks to why consistency matters so much to the sales leader. Well, if you don't have like the same language and stages and exit criteria, and nobody has a shared understanding of what we're doing, then you are useless as a sales leader. Like, what What can you do? Nothing. So that's why consistency matters so much, right? It's just being able to manage at scale. There's probably a lot more answers to the question, why does consistency matter? That's the big one, though, is just like, if you don't have that, it's going to be wild west very, very quickly, and there will be no predictability in your revenue and your revenue motion.
1: And I think that the last thing you did at Gong was help the company transition to a multi-product company. What was that second product and how did that transition sort of impact the sales process?
0: Well, I don't think I was there long enough to fully speak to how it impacted the sales process because that was like my last hurrah at Gong. I did this like head of multi-product revenue job for probably six or seven months and then I was out. Um, that first product was forecast, right? So up until that point in our history, we just sold Gong and that was it. There was no modules, no pricing or packaging differences, no additional products, and so Forecast was the first separately monetized bolt-on product that we sold. And it was hard, like launching that thing. We launched it at breakneck speed, like six months from basically idea to the product hitting the market uh, it was a very grueling pace. How it changed our sales process, though, I can only speak to this lightly because, again, I left shortly after. It changed discovery quite a bit because reps had to like more comprehensively diagnose the customer's problem to see if there was an opportunity to offer a multi-product value proposition. So that was a big piece. And there was a lot of questions of like, do we even want new business reps selling multi-product because it could complicate the deals and slow down the sales cycle? Or should we just have them take down the logo? And then like expansion reps can go sell the additional product. So there's I'm trying to go into the recesses of my memory during that time, but it was complicated. Those uh, launching a second product is is not for the faint of heart.
1: On a personal level, I'm curious what this whole Gong experience was for you. I mean, it must have been wild being there in the early days, seeing it grow, and like, how were you able to keep up with the company growth and kind of scale yourself? Yeah,
0: well, I've loved my time at Gong right from start to finish. Like, I have so much affinity for that time in my life there are so many complex emotions that happen to a person when you go through that journey, right? Cause you start at the beginning, tiny company, you have no idea what the potential is and it keeps growing and growing and growing. And you start to worry, you're like, is this thing going to scale past my capabilities? I worried about that all the time. And so I like obsessively was trying to keep my skills, you know, up to date and at pace with, with how the business was growing. And so there's just the best way I could describe it is there's this complex inner life you have when you're an early employee and you scale with the business. And the hardest part of it is like, you make so much impact early on, right? One Gong Labs article like changed the game for us. And then as you grow, you feel your impact diluting just a little bit more, even if you're still in a leadership position, just because the company's big, right? Like, By the time I left Gong, we had like, I think, 1,200 employees. And so I went from being, to some extent, the face of the company to like kind of just another senior leader who was running a different part of the business alongside many, many other people. And that kind of messes with you a little bit. (laughs) It messes with me, that's for sure. Yeah. It was very weird for me at Lattice
1: too. It just changes, you know, like on a personal note, like the friendships you have and your position. And yeah. it. it's also weird being like the scary boss when you're like, wait, I'm not scared. You know, it's like it's just weird the perceptions of other people at the company as it evolves. So yeah, I don't know. Definitely is a is a mind journey for for yourself to go on. Yeah. 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 In 2022, you left Gone to kind of go start your own businesses. And so you're the co-founder of a company called Coda Signal that I think helped us improve the sales interview process. And then you also started P-Club, a sales learning platform. Why did you start not one, but two companies? And sort of how do you think of these companies working together? Because from my perspective, it seems like kind of one's the community and the content, one's maybe the software. How do you think about it?
0: Yeah. So pclub.io, that's our core business. Like That's the one me and my co-founder are, are by far most focused on. Probably 10 years ago, we tried to start the same business. One of the businesses that we get inspiration from for P-Club is a business called Pluralsight. Pluralsight is a Utah company. They do around $500 million in revenue. And they're the same thing as P-Club, but for technology folks. It's a large online learning library for software developers and technology people. And back in like 2014, they had just crossed $100 million in revenue and they're, you know, in my backyard, basically, because I lived in Utah at the time. And my co-founder and I were like, we should try to start this, but for revenue teams, right? Imagine a big online learning company for sales and revenue and marketing and that kind of thing. And it just kind of fizzled out. We never really did anything with it. But then fast forward to 2022, almost a decade later, we started Quota Signal, which is like the interview as a service company, But at the same time, I created my first online course to see if we could just bootstrap some cash. I figured it'd make like a thousand bucks a month or something, and it just took off like a rocket ship. And so I was like, okay, let's do another one. So we created a second one, and then we created a third one. And like within a couple months, these courses were doing well into the six figures a month. And so we decided as this was happening, we were raising a little bit of money, like a pre-seed run. And we're like, let's focus on P-Club. Like quota signal is cool, but it's really hard to hire or sell hiring technology and services in an environment where nobody's hiring. <laughs> and P-Club is just feels easy compared to this. And so our vision like started to shape with P-Club and we went from selling just to individuals to selling to businesses. And, you know, I've got a contract out for a quarter million dollar deal right now. With P Club, and it's just grown like crazy. So, so that's P Club. The genesis behind P Club, like years and years ago, when I was an SDR, me and my co-founder went to an amusement park together with our girlfriends, who are now our wives. All of us are like best friends. And I told him, I was like, I can't play the drums anymore, which was previously my life stream because I got like tendonitis in all my limbs. And I've decided I'm going to get rich. I don't know how, but I'm like telling him, I'm like, I'm going to make a ton of money. And my co-founder, like he just says things in a smart way. And I like, remember exactly what he said. He goes, if you want to do well for yourself economically, you should learn to sell and should get really good at it. And that inspired me to like double down on this SDR job. Now, how does that relate to P club That. 12 year journey, or whatever it was, I became obsessed with skill acquisition because it helped me rise from like lower class in life to like doing pretty well for myself. And so I became very interested in learning, very interested in skill building, and I still am. And that's the mission behind P Club, right? We, the mission is we help people acquire economically valuable skills so that we can raise prosperity. So there's a lot of just complex backstory to kind of all of this.
1: And what does P-Club kind of sort of look like behind the scenes? Are you in some ways like almost like a a teacher and just coming up with like curriculum and content and videos and different things? Or is it just you in the videos? Do you have other people? How do you sort of think about like the content
0: that you're selling to these
1: enablement teams?
0: Yeah. I mean, we have um, a couple dozen courses now and I did like maybe the first five or six. So I have a head of course production and his job is to go find the top tech revenue practitioners to teach courses on very like finite, distinct skills. And so it's becoming less and less about like me, right? Chris Orlob doing the courses and more about other people. And so he runs that part of the business. I have a head of sales who's running B2B, but I'm very involved there. Like any deal over 20 grand I'm involved in a head of growth marketing who runs the consumer side. I'm also super involved in that part of the business. Her and I kind of like tag team it. She does certain things well and I do certain things well. And then my co-founder has an engineering team and we're building all the software that supports all the courses and makes intelligent recommendations based on skill gaps and all this stuff. So my day-to-day is, is kind of a cluster. <laughs> There's no day the same. I can't really fit in routine anymore, which is kind of sad because I like having the first couple hours of my day be the same, but it's really hard for me to fit in the time to do that these days.
1: That's just founder life. I feel like I always have a plan for every day. And then I wake up, open up my laptop and Worst. it's like, you get punched in the face of one way or the other. And you're like, okay, I'm going to do that now. Uh, yeah. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> yeah, What's been the surprisingly hardest part of building the company? What's something that's been unexpectedly hard for you?
0: We're getting away with murder. It has been shockingly, I don't want to say it's been easy because I've worked harder on this than I have anywhere. But, you know, we were really fortunate, right? We started this company. I already had a big audience on LinkedIn. And so it was not a cold start company. In hindsight, it's not shocking that like we grew as fast as we did and just got that initial traction. The hardest part for me, at least, is context switching because we have these two revenue lines, right? We have like the consumer revenue and the business revenue. And anytime I put more focus on one, the other one suffers. And then I like go back and put the focus on, it's like plain whack-a-mole. And so trying to build a self-managing company is like the hardest part right now. Like, How can I build this company in a way that's not so dependent on my hands? And so I can take a step back and like dissect the company from the outside and think about what we should be doing differently rather than like so much day-to-day execution. It makes
1: a lot of sense. Uh, it's like relatively easy in the sense that yeah, you have this giant LinkedIn following. You did the smart thing of like go build the audience and go build the customer base and then go sell the product into them, uh, which yeah. I think is like what I've you know tried to do a little bit, but nowhere near as successful. But yeah, no, it makes sense. Um, so yeah, most people know you from like your viral LinkedIn post. Like, how have you thought about curating that audience over time? I and mean, I know it started in the Gong Lab side, but yeah, can you take us behind the scenes a little bit of how you think about your own? channel
0: the more i'm asked questions like this the more i start to realize i'm probably not that great of a strategic thinker because i don't plan this stuff out like i just go and then i iterate over time like if you ask me like what's your strategy for linkedin i would tell you publish every day for a year and you'll never worry about money problems again that's my strategy (laughs) now now i'm sure i could articulate a better strategy but i never had like some master plan you know of how i was going to do it how i was going to like Build the audience in a certain way. I just had, if you wanted to really condense it, it's just I want to create concrete value for people. And if you do that, and you do that consistently, and you have a unique, insightful taste or take on things, then a snowball starts to form. And as long as you're consistent with it, then it's all downhill from there.
1: One of the things I've struggled with is just in the chaos of building a company, it's like carving time out to write and think about things and make genuinely interesting posts and things like that. How do you think about your own content schedule? Are you like bulk writing a bunch? Do you have a team helping you a little bit? How do you sort of think about that?
0: No, that's... Yeah. The first thing is like, to me, getting LinkedIn posts and stuff like that out the door is as important to our business as breathing is to a human. Because like we generate a lot of B2C revenue from that. We get a lot of inbound demand. And so if I'm not doing that, I'm like kind of killing, not killing, but slowing down our revenue. So it's not a nice to have for our business. Like right now it is like, it is very much the nexus point of our entire like marketing and go to market. So that's one. How do I tackle it? Just through chaos. I've tried to like outsource this. I've I've paid people like twice and I've used none of their posts just because like, I can't get their voice to match mine. And I had this moment the last time I did this that failed. This was only a couple months ago. I paid you know some guy $6,000 a month to see if he could do this. And he couldn't. And the realization I had is this is a super strength of mine, like writing, and it doesn't make sense to outsource a super strength. Outsource things that you're okay at and bad at, or maybe even good at, but don't outsource the super strength. And so I finally like made this decision that I wasn't going to try to hand that off to somebody else. I don't bulk write; It just burns too much like brain power. I can't imagine sitting down for like five hours on a Sunday and trying to write everything in advance. That sounds like I'd rather put bike spokes in my eyeballs. (laughs) And so I don't do this every day, but I do do it most days. I try to find a 90 minute window every day where it's just content creation. And it's usually like 45 minutes of that is on LinkedIn, 15 minutes, I'll do a very quick and snappy podcast episode and I'll try to fit some YouTube videos. And although I'm not a YouTube expert yet, I aspire to be, but I'm not there yet.
1: That was actually my next question. I was curious how you're thinking about YouTube because, you know, I'm trying to do that. That's why you're actually on, on this podcast too. Like, how do you think about YouTube channel and why are you picking that as like, you know, potentially your, your next LinkedIn distribution?
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, if I had my druthers, I would do everything. I would be like three days or three times a day on LinkedIn, five or six times a day on Twitter, once a day on YouTube, once a day on podcast, like just a immersive content machine. But we're still a small team. So I can't do that. And so YouTube just feels like the most natural place to go from here. I'm still not sold on Twitter. I still kind of just screw around with it. I have no idea if I'm going to be able to build an audience. But it's obvious that there's enough sales-oriented professionals on YouTube. So that's why I'm doubling down there. Instagram's interesting to me, but like this is another like bike spokes on the eyeball thing. I don't want to like take this and like be talking on my phone six times a day. It just doesn't sound fun to me.
1: <laughs> yeah. I mean I I think YouTube, I'm very bullish on YouTube as a future channel too, because I think yeah. it just has such an amazing distribution engine built into the platform. And I think B2B content is pretty underserved there. Right. And I think over time, that just becomes more and more of of the channel. So we'll see if see what happens. All right. I'd love to end today's conversation talking a little, about, a little bit about the future of sales tech. Sales tech stacks are sort of consolidating. And there's like this war going on between, I feel like all the major players outside of the CRM category, Gong, Outreach, Clary, Zoom Info, are all sort of going after each other, building each other stuff. I'm curious if you have any insights into like, how do you think this plays
0: out future of sales technology? What do you think happens? I mean, we've seen this movie before in sales tech and marketing tech. It is just the bundling and unbundling ebb and flow of how these categories evolve, right? Like right now we're in a bundling phase because everybody's trying to copy each other and have like a big Frankenstein solution. And that's what the market wants because the economy's hurting right now. So they want the all in one, one vendor, cheaper price total. But I'm sure within the next couple of years, that entire category is going to start to unbundle. People are going to want point solutions that are best in class. And there's going to be a few new startups that start attacking these bundled companies. And then they're going to bundle, unbundle their solution. And then the economy is going to ebb and flow again. And then they're going to bundle. It's, <laughs> you can predict this stuff almost with precision. Now, what are those categories going to look like in the future? I have no idea. I almost don't want to like ever be asked about my predictions of like where sales tech's gonna go. Cause I don't know, I have no idea. <laughs> I know a lot of people who have like opinions on where they think it's gonna go beyond what I just shared, like bundling and unbundling. They know something I don't. I don't know how to predict the future.
1: Well, thank you so much for the time today, Chris. Learned a lot in this conversation. If people wanna reach out to you, I know, I'm sure they already know you on LinkedIn, but where can they find P Club and, and the different businesses you're up to?
0: Yeah, uh, LinkedIn's probably the best, right? You can follow me, you can connect. If you're interested in staying on the cutting edge of sales skills, you can go to pclub.io and those are probably the best places.
1: Awesome. Thank you so much. That's a wrap on another episode of Grow & Tell. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe to us on YouTube or your favorite podcast platform, or find every episode at growandtellshow.com. I'm your host, Alex Krakow. Thank you for listening.